A number of years ago, when the world wasn't shut down by the pandemic, I was flown to Stockholm, Sweden by the Absolute Art Awards. When I was there, I met Theester Gates, Beatrix Roof, and a number of other art world art stars. We went around to different museums, met with different curators and media people, and had a great weekend, although I was extremely jet-lagged. The following presentation is a talk Theester gave at a museum. I think he's one of the most intelligent, important artists of his generation. A couple weeks ago, I was in Paris at the Pompidou. I went to see the Cy Twombly show. The, the show was, I mean, the show is beautiful, right? But it was, it was Cy Twombly over maybe 25 years. And so you go into one room, and there's a set of gray paintings. You go in another room, there's his blue clouds. You go in another room, there's this constellation of uh, yellow-toned, creamish, uh, uh, backdrops with blobs and then align um, moments of minimalism. Then you go, there's the fifth floor of the Pompidou, you go to the, to the far room where you can see the cityscape and then there's all his sculptures. And you go around the corner from that and there's a series of his photographs which had never been seen, which were rarely seen, which, which never would have been shown in a Cy Twombly painting show during Twombly's life in a particular way. And, and I think what happens is that in the, in the history of modernism, there was the burden to, to imagine that what an artist did was singular and super specific. And that it was the singularity that was being sold that allowed people to say, man, this, this person is focused and singular, and they just use crayons say. But in fact, Cy Twombly was using crayons and watercolor and oil and acrylics and photography. And that all of these guys who, uh, all of these guys who had a Black Mountain experience, they were also probably doing performance stuff and poetry. And that, that, and that, that, that um, promiscuity was really just the, the, the wellspring of, of being creative. But for the art historian, it's messy, let's say. Or for the curator, it's messy. For, um, for the history of art, it's messy. And so then the challenge is, how much do you show of your true creative self? And then at what point um, does all of that exposure of all of your parts become kind of diminishing returns. I don't mean to have such long sentences. What I'm saying is, I think that my practice is not unlike many practices, in that um, in order to get to one new inspiration, it actually requires that um, access in play in another medium or another material. And that, um, to myself, you know, in the same way that they could say, this is the Cy Twombly retrospective, 
and it all lives under the Cy Twombly retrospective, and then that umbrella is big enough to include all of the parts of himself, I think that that's a move from what seemed like a modernist moment of specificity and particularity, and uh, trying to make a very explicit, say, painting show or drawing show, uh, which feels uh, like a curatorial premise more than it feels like it might be the nature of an artist. Having said that, uh, I feel like what I'm trying to do in this, uh, as a young artist, maybe not younger than some young artists, but as a young artist, I feel like I'm still trying to develop a vocabulary of materials and a, and a vocabulary for making. And that vocabulary right now is really wide. Like it's like, it, it really is like learning a language. And so it's like, man, the difference between the minor pentatonic in black music and like 12 part harmonics in Indian music. Like if I took the minor pentatonic and this 12 part, like what would happen if I keep adding uh, varying languages together and then those, language, those languages kind of create a creole and then that creole becomes a more complex language, not not necessarily like a, a dumbed down version of the multiple languages, but I feel like I'm trying to accumulate languages and that I'm still in the process of developing the vocabulary and learning my alphabets. And so I know now that I like to mess with tar and I like to mess with um, wood and metal and plaster and old buildings but it, it still feels like it's primordial. And maybe it'll get to something essential, you know, where it's like, oh, now all I do is I make X. You work with objects, you work with music, you work mm. with various different media, but you also work with sort of larger economies and you mm. work with um, institutions. Mm -hmm. And there are kind of larger ideas and, and bigger forces mm -hmm. at stake. And I'm wondering if you see your work with specific materials as derived in some way from those larger forces or, or do they are they codependent or, or how, do, what do you, how do you see the relationship between that? Yeah. Lately I've been watching a lot of um, like Chinese movie house fight films and and I love those moments when there's like this old dude and he's like the head of the calligraphy school, right? And it's like, all this old dude does is he just writes tree over and over again. And it's like, and he just does that over and over, calligraphy. And he's also like the best swordsman in the region, <laughs> you know? And, and like those moments where one, one, uh, one, discipline uh, helps to house the passion of another, or by understanding the nature, say, of one discipline, the nature, the poetics of that discipline then can inform this other thing, which may seem in some ways less poetic, right? So that <clears throat> last night I was watching this movie and like the one dude had a gun and the other dude had like a bamboo stick. And that was uneven. <laughs> but the dude with the bamboo stick was so much more poetic 
You know, there were like so many other ways he could, um, he could uh, um, play with the idea of a fight, let's say. And that, and that it, it made the fight so much more interesting in, in this masterful um, swordsman without his sword, but with this replacement tool, the stand-in, that maybe in some ways I feel like that, that's the work that I'm involved in, is that um, it is reasonable that to make a, a drawing or a diagram in my, in my journal is to imagine a world. And that if, and, and you know, I was saying this to some friends, if I can imagine, if I can sketch a world on a page and get it to the point where it feels really um, like, it, like it reconciles itself, it makes sense, you know, whether I'm like playing with an organizational chart or, or reimagining a master plan for a neighborhood in a city or trying to figure out the spatial dynamics of a show in which things feel right or not, that all of that feels like the calligraphy let's say, the kind of um, the necessary disciplinary poetic work in advance of executing this other thing that is also really important to me. So sometimes, you know, like uh, if I have to meet with the mayor of a city or I have to meet with somebody or I have to give a talk, I find myself writing the same kinds of notes, like don't forget to say this, like don't forget to like look at the mayor in his face, or don't forget to tell her, you know, um, you, these things in priority, because you only have 45 minutes and you can only say so much, and so it's really important that you, like, you say, I'm an artist first. Like, that's what I'm supposed to say today. I'm an artist first. And then, you know, and so I, I, I just love this idea that um, calligraphy and swordsmanship represent a kind of poetic and a dynamic. Um, maybe both have their own end games. And, like, and I want to win on the terms of, of calligraphy and be good at it and, and on swordsmanship and like not get killed. Um, and so it, it means that to the world, it just looks like you're, you're doing grossly different things. But in fact, if you understand the nature of calligraphy, you find that, oh, actually all of that stuff is about, um, uh, it's about intentionality, right? Like there's like, there's courage and confidence and intent. Yeah. So you, you can. <laughs> I, might, I mean, whatever, you guys, it's early, I'm sorry. <laughs> whatever, I hope. I'm trying to keep that kung fu, you know. So, so I'll 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 ask a question that you can just completely shoot down because this may may be completely wrong. But I guess I'm wondering. I mean, yes, to an extent, you're right that most people think broadly if allowed, and most artists think in various ways. There is a sense where you, you I think you do it a little bit more. Okay. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering if, and you can say no, but I'm wondering if Chicago, being in Chicago is part of that at all. And just the fact of that city being, um, there, there's just so much room there. Um, and room outside of maybe the, the main art markets and the main art centers, and just allows you a bit more freedom to think differently. Um, 
whereas where physical space could be a kind of mental space. Right. So let's put, let's keep, let the first part of your question about like um, how, how do you get to all of this different things, the dynamism, let's, let's separate that from the Chicago thing because I think both are interesting separately. Um, if we, I think it has, this has to do with biography, maybe. So when I was a little kid, my dad had this great job at a company called Gerald Products. Gerald, they made refrigeration parts and he was an expert at fixing motors. My dad wanted, um, the company wanted my dad to train this young guy who had graduated from college, young white guy, wanted my dad to train this dude to fix motors so that he could then become the foreman of all these older brothers. My dad said, I'm not teaching that dude how to make a motor. And so Gerald Product said, well, you know, if you don't teach him, um, uh, you're fired, you know. And he was like three or four years away from pension. He was 40 years old. This is when people started working when they were 16, 17. And he said, I'm not teaching this dude. So they fired my dad a um, few years before his pension. And I remember that being a very tough moment uh, for my mom and dad. I remember my mom was not very happy about that. But my dad always like worked on cars on the weekend and had these other jobs. When he left Gerald Products, he had saved a little cash and then he like, he bought a gas station. He started buying buildings. We had a, a pinball. We had like a game room in one of our basements that people used. He would go to the wholesale suppliers and get like all the candy. He became the candy man. Um, we had a car wash. And then in my, in my high school years, in addition to roofing with my dad, he also had a barbecue pit. It was called Gates Brothers Barbecue on Chicago Avenue in Pulaski. And my dad basically was like, he, I think my dad under, understands or understood. And my mom, they were from a generation where it was like, how do you convert your skill into a thing that helps you survive? It was really, it was really, it was really straightforward, you know? And so there was never like a question of, um, it was never like do one thing and do it well. We didn't have the luxury of that philosophy. It was like, do what you need to do to survive. And that, and that that could make a rich life for your family, right? It was very practical. And so I think that that really has influenced me. Like it was like, there was never a mantra of singularity. And so I, I think, you know, to go back to art, I know lots of painters who do other things so that they can get to the essential painting. Those other things are just kind of warm up things and are never intended to be seen they're just like in service to painting. Um, same way with uh, ceramics. My history with ceramics is like, I look at lots of things, I may take snapshots of things, I'm looking at uh, 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 pictures of pots all the time, taking photos of pots, but ultimately that's in service to making a good pot, you know, that, that I would never. And I think that that's true in a certain kind of craftsmanship. But in the contemporary, or in this moment, um, People can be much more um, heteroactive in a way, you know, that, that, that there is a kind of, um, you don't have to decide between one material and another material. And, and so, so let's say that that's true. 
Then it's also true that my mom and dad always had extra space. So it would be like, you know, if, if our um, toilets were clogged up, my dad would say, go to the garage of 701 and get the rod so that we could ride out the basement, you know? And if the roof was leaking, he'd say, go to the tire shop. The tire kettle is there. Hitch the tire kettle to the pickup truck, and then we can, we can patch this thing. And that there was always a kind of like spatiality in, in relationship to tools and facility, in relationship to my dad's ability to never need another person to help solve the problems within his eco, ecosystem. Right? He had all the tools we needed to solve every problem we had. And I love that. Then I worked, I was a mason's tender. You know, like when I was young, I just used, I'd get a job wherever I could. But being a mason's tender was the hardest work maybe I've done. And I worked for this dude, Julian Aranda. And Julian would say, I'm going to pay you, I'm pay you $10 an hour to mix mortar. When you get your own tools, I'll pay you $15 an hour. And so some guys have been $10 an hour guys for like two or three years. My first check, I went and bought tools. You know, there was like, it was like, say that again. I was like, say that again. You're going you gonna to pay me $10, and then if I got my own tools, you're going to no, I was like, this is a no-brainer. You know, and, and, and I think that, that that also felt practical. And I think Julian, early, early on in my, like I was a maker by then, I think Julian was trying to just convey the power of having your own tools in a way different than my dad was saying it, but, but, in, but nonetheless, like when you, you know, if, if, the wor- if you're worlding, if you're trying to figure out how to make sense of the world and you have the tools and facility and space to kind of solve simple or complex problems, th- that, that you can kind of participate in the world differently. And I'm, I'm thinking, of, as soon as I said that, I did that, it made me think of Kerry James Mas- uh, Marshall and his mastery talk. Like, like we, gave, we talked together, and he was like, I do what I do so that I never have to be dependent upon anyone ever in my life. And that is a, that's a particular kind of self-determinism and... It's, it's from a particular place versus, oh, somebody out there can fix my plumbing or somebody out there, you know, that I just, I just accept the responsibility that the problems that live around me um, in my neighborhood, in my studio, that I want to be able to be a participant in the solutions and not just a, an administrator to the solutions that, that live around me. So um, thinking more specifically now about this show, Mm -hmm. um, the title, The Minor Arts. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? The title of my exhibition that you'll see sometime is The Minor Arts. And um, the reason I chose the title initially was um, The Minor Arts is the designation that's used in art history for the craft of varying cultures. So that if I have, uh, in my glass slide collection, if we're talking about Greece, it may, it may break down by uh, city-state or something, or location, and then it may break down by uh, period, time period. 
And then there's this more broad category called the minor arts, where it's like coins, textiles, ceramics, right? And that inside of the minor arts, then there are these subcategories. Um, and so it's like, well, to have a minor arts means that you have a major art, maybe. And so I was kind of interested in that idea that craft was considered minor in the canons of art history, you know. Um, and so, the, so then the, the designation minor arts was something that I was looking for always in my, my images on art history. And, and that's where I would find ceramics or people who were really good at their hands, um, whether or not they always got credit for thinking as much as they got credit for having good hands. So that's one way, reading minor. And then I was also thinking about you know, minority and majority in a, in a, in a social sense and uh, what it means to be the fifth artist to have an exhibition, fifth living artist to have an fourth. fourth. Fourth living artist to have an exhibition at the National Gallery and kind of, you know, thinking about what it, you know, to be, to be major is to be dead, <laughs> you know? And, and, and to be minor is to be in the world of the living. And, and as a result, um, maybe the museum knows how to work with dead people better, you know, in a way. More experience with the dead. But like to have this occasion where the museum trusts the living enough to allow me to participate alongside um, artists who I really admire. Um, so, so, and then the idea of a kind of um, how one reads race um, into my glass lantern slide collection, let's say, into the canon of art history, which is um, the only things that emerge um, as uh, non-Western is ancient, or, um, yeah, is ancient, you know, or like the dark continent, you know, so you have fetishes and stuff. So I think that the show became an opportunity to talk about my love of craft and my, um, my kind of response to, to being in the living and also uh, a way of kind of situating blackness in this museum. And I, I think that the Ebony um, Library starts to try to do that. So I'll just show, um, again, a few of the uh, images from the works of the show. So there is, um, on the back wall of the gallery, this massive um, slate roof that's been constructed, tile, tile by tile from um, material you'll salvage, you salvaged from um, St. Lawrence Church, uh, which was a, a church that was decommissioned in 2002. And there's a bright spot in the upper right area. And in a way that, well, just pay attention to that when you see the show. <laughs> look at the medium line. <laughs> and look, yeah. Then there is a painting slash sculpture um, that you've made from the reassembled planks um, of a high school gym floor. And there are a few paintings made out of tar, one of which you've hacked with an ax, and one of which is this one here, which is um, tar that's um, applied onto Naugahyde. And there are a couple of objects that refer to um, African sculpture and ritual objects um, made of bronze and ceramic. 
and there's this library that you're referring to, um, this, this towering library, um, which contains bound copies of Ebony Magazine. I think when I was, when I was with Linda Johnson-Rice, and all of these Ebony magazines were sprawled out. So Linda Johnson Rice being the... The heiress of Johnson Publishing. This is John Johnson's daughter, um, who had given me not only his book collection, the, 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 the 26,000 books that they had amassed over the years of Ebony. Um, she also gave me all of the loose and bound periodicals that they had. Um, that, that mass of, you know, it was probably 13 or 14,000 loose magazines from 1954, 55 to 2013 that, that the publishing industry, that her company no longer needed those images, those old magazines, because they were in the past. There was no way to make last month's news interesting yet. This is a bigger conversation that I want to have one day about the work that images do. And, but, the, but the work that Linda Johnson Rice was in was responsible for presenting the present. And so all of these old images, they were just you know, a kind of chaos, unconsumable, a big mess. And so they're no longer a mess. But because they were a certain kind of mess, because there was a certain amount of disorder, and there were so many of them, uh, and they were a nuisance, and they were heavy, and they were taking up space, and it co that space cost money, um, she was just ready to throw them all away. Um, kind of like that moment uh, when, when uh, slavery was abolished, and there was no way to kind of use people in the same way and, and like and what grew in the early early 20th century was like well what do we do with all these negroes now that they're not working for us and so i think that that, that this this um tendency toward trying to make order out of heavy messy costly things um is like the calligraphy that that, that i had to say linda if we just take these magazines collate them bind them, um, you'll have a tremendous uh, legacy moment that we should cherish. And if you give me these things that, that may be going to the garbage or maybe um, we don't know what to do with them, if you give them to me, um, I'm going to ensure that your legacy is noted as much as I can. And so in a way, Johnson Publishing Company has become a kind of um, my chosen burden to kind of um, make the, the amazing entrepreneurial genius of John Johnson known, but also to kind of consistently give order to the unordered as a kind of metaphor for um, the importance of giving form to things that are just a nuisance. So this, um, thinking more about this issue of order is uh, especially interesting in relationship to the gym floor. Let's say that, that there's this word, the word is dialectic. I don't exactly know what the word means, <laughs> to be honest, dialectic. But I'd like, to, I'd like to imagine that the word has something to do with 
something meaning at least two things, or a thing being able to talk to you and have more than one meaning, or a, 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 a way of imagining that, um, yeah, something that means one thing could, could mean something else. There are people who probably could do that better than me, this definition. But I thought, through this gym floor work and through the slate work, I wanted to create a kind of dialectic, which is I'm talking about um, color field painting, which is a moment in art history. Um, I'm thinking about abstract expressionism, another moment in art history. Thinking about um, European abstraction. And that, and that, in that, I want to make a good painting on the on the terms of painting. Um, the other side of this that makes it a dialectic is that I'm also interested in the fact that schools in poor neighborhoods around the country are being closed, and that those schools, in addition to being places of learning, they were also where you learn the rules. It's where you played, and as a result of playing, you learn rules, right? And that, 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 was, that play was also a kind of socialization that young black boys don't have anymore, that, that people in urban spaces don't have anymore. So when you think about the fact that seven kids were shot a couple days ago in Chicago, it's hard not to imagine that um, our unwillingness to understand the importance of helping to create a brain that understands rules, and that those rules in include understanding the value of passing, the importance of your teammates, that when you, when you don't have that um, built mechanism, something really, something, something shuts down or breaks down. So there are a lot of people that talk about the importance of play. There's fascist play that helps you learn bad rules, and then there's like, you know, important, important play that helps you understand really, really healthy rules. And I think maybe my dialectic is between this idea of painting and this idea that they're, they're, we're in a moment of lawlessness for our young people. And that that lawlessness in some cases make, make um, it makes me reflective on the importance of piecing back those scrimmages. Um, and and maybe, maybe that's, that's these pieces are, the broad series is called Ground Rules. And uh, I think I'm just kind of thinking about that a lot. Yeah. Since 2005, White Hot Magazine the best art in the world, over 500 writers and over 5,000 articles online about contemporary art.